Hi everyone and welcome back to dot to dot an education podcast for teachers that shines light on things that are working well in industry and connects them to the classroom. I'm Ryder Tracy, Head of Educational Transformation at Creatable, and in today's episode, I have the great privilege of talking to Tara McKenty, Creative Head at Google Asia Pacific. Welcome, Tara, and thanks for joining us today. No worries. Hi, Ryder. How are you doing? And yeah, hi to everyone listening out there. Thanks for having me. It's a real privilege. Oh, we're very excited to have you here. Um, before I uh, dive in, because I've read all the notes and I've done all my research, um, but I might get you to just tell us a little bit about your role. What does the creative head at Google do? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my role at Google is I'm a creative head at um, Google Brand Studio, which is Google Marketing's internal creative team for the Asia Pacific region. And our role as a creative team really is to remind people why why they like Google, basically. Anything from, you know, traditional brand television spots to, you know, full marketing campaigns to innovation, which is where I spend a lot of my time um, to design. So any project that requires an internal creative team's inside is, is normally um, a brief that our team will get. So very much targeted at, yeah, just building brand love and equity um, with our users throughout the region. Oh, brilliant. I, I, I would imagine that there would be a fair bit of kind of problem solving, you know, in and as as part of that role. I did I did have a little look at some of the products you've created previously. And um, one I wanted to start with, because I'm just fascinated by this, is Penny the Pirate. Can you talk to me about Penny the Pirate and the product and what problem Penny solves? I'm not sure if I got enough alliteration in there. <laughs> well, I named it, so you can blame the alliteration on me. Um, you brought up Penny the Pirate. That's uh, an excellent example of problem solving. And it was a piece I did prior to Google when I was at Saatchi and Saatchi and was working on healthcare brand OPSM. OPSM came to us as their agency and brought up a problem um, that they'd identified that 20% of high schoolers had undetected eye issues. And this was a problem that they wanted, as a brand, wanted to see if they could play a more helpful role and, and solve. I think when it comes to just divert off Penny, and I'll come back to it, when it comes to problem solving and coming up with solutions and, and creativity in general, there's a number of ways that you can do it. And the the easiest way is to draw on your own experiences or perspective that you have as a creative. There's two other ways that you can come up with creative solutions or problem solve, and that is if you're problem solving on behalf of someone else, it's consulting with that person or that group and, and problem solving with their consultation. If you're problem solving on behalf of an, an entire community, and I think we'll talk about another work example later in the piece, you actually can't do that with consultation. You need to slow right down for co and co-create it with that community because when you're, you know, designing solutions or solving problems for, for people that it affects on mass, they need to be part of that creation process because it's solutions for them and their problems and you'll never be able to understand their problems as much as someone from that community. So tangent aside and, and back to Penny, the idea for Penny the Pirate was really solved through my own experience of growing up with a solo mum and and rural New Zealand in a small coastal town. I was trying to think, well, when we're brainstorming, how do we solve this? 
I was taking myself back to a parent and what my mother would have been experiencing because I actually also wear glasses and I didn't know until I went and got myself tested later in life. Growing up with a solo mum, going to the supermarket was hard enough with three older brothers without killing each other, let alone walking in, going for an eye test. Um, and then, of course, the financial fear of if my child does need glasses, how much is that going to cost? Or if all three of my children need glasses, like it, it becomes quite daunting and quite hard. Everyone's probably wondering, well, what is Penny the Pirate? It's it's basically a hidden eye test um, in a, a kid's storybook. So it's it's something it's it's a behaviour that parents and children do every single day, and it's a non-invasive way for parents to be able to screen non-detected eye issues. But the first thing what my creative partner at the time did is we actually asked OPSM to explain to us how they actually tested children's eyes. The beauty of Penny really was we just really simplified it. So Penny the Pirate is, you know, the adventures of, of Penny who's trying to become the captain of the Mighty Pickle and along the way the child has to assist Penny in training to become the captain um, through a number of pirate tasks and those are the hidden integrated eye tests. So we really wanted to ensure that the quality of the book matched that of what else was on the shelf of, of parents at home. We also released an app um, for, for people that couldn't get install, install sorry, and, and receive a book. Um, it went into libraries, it went into remote communities to also help screen uh, the vision of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island children. And then it ended up actually winning some innovation awards and, and became the most um, effective campaign in the world for that year that it was released. So, yeah, I think eye tests went up by about 26% from memory. For me, is really special because it means that that 26% of kids that did receive eye care after that meant that they didn't have to struggle during their education and so forth because their eyesight was identified. So, yeah, wow, it's it's um it's such a journey from the in the first problem statement. You know, 20% of high school students with undiagnosed kind of eye condition going back to that root cause and coming up with that kind of accessible solution. I'd like to seize on one idea from it for for our, our teachers out there. What what you did was really clever, which is have high quality engagement to diagnose something, like look for something with intent, but not necessarily overt or explicitly kind of test that. Because we've got a bit of a, there's a little bit of a stress agenda in some of the assessments that we do, like the high stakes testing and kind of standardized testing. So I really like the approach you've taken of of embedding that. As we were talking about Penny, uh, you spoke about different types of kind of creative problem solving that that sat there. One of them was the kind of different approach to co-creation and and knowing what type of collaboration you're participating in. Um, and in particular, I think you were referencing the Kupu uh, project. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and that process? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a few years ago at Google, I was working um, – on one of our clients, Spark, who's our largest telecommunications company in, in New Zealand, they're equivalent to Telstra here in Australia. And they were trying to solve a problem for New Zealanders, which was the decline in their native language, which is Māori, which is te reo. They wanted to know as a brand and everything they had and resources, how could they provide a solution? So that's where when Google was brought in. So we um, fortunately have some pretty advanced technology when it comes to image recognition um, and, and machine learning. So one of the ideas we put forward was, well, you know, often people can feel quite intimidated to learn a new language or they don't know where to start. So is there an interesting entry point? So 
what we prototyped was we could actually take a picture of any object and then it used Google's image recognition technology to identify what was in the image and then it translated it into te reo Māori or the Māori word for what you saw. So you can point it at anything, basically, and explore the world around you in te reo Māori. So we had this working with the language database which plugs into te reo Māori and, and Google Translate and it was working with about I'd say 90-ish percent accuracy and we had the technology built in three months and could have launched something that would work pretty well. And what we realized very quickly on in the process that this needed to be built and made with the Māori community for them to adopt it, want to use it and for them to be proud of, of it and that also trusted us with their language and we needed to to treat that process respectfully and slow down um, to allow for co-creation. We engaged with iwi, so Māori elders from all of the different tribes across New Zealand, and we gave them the technology. We got them to feed in, to iterate it. We changed and iterated the app and listened to them along the whole. So basically, if they gave us feedback, we implemented it because it was a tool really for their people and their community. So even though... We had it ready in three months. It took us two years to launch. Another part of the process was we realized that the dictionary we were using in Google Translate, there was actually a superior dictionary, the Tiaka Dictionary in New Zealand. So we made the decision not to use a Google database, which would have been the quicker route, and to then negotiate with the Tiaka Dictionary. And, and then we actually you know, worked with them to use their library because it was better to make the product better. Um, yeah, so it took two years of working with the community to make it. It was really special when we launched it because not only did it, we launched it during Māori Language Week, I think three years ago, not only became the most downloaded app in New Zealand, so it outperformed Netflix, Spotify, and even YouTube, um, but it to this day is still used by Spark as a platform that continues to help people learn today Māori in New Zealand. And along the way, because we did slow down and co-create, we created a really fantastic product, which since has won, you know, industry awards for UX. And we kind of had the time to just finesse it and make it this really lovely experience to, to be in. For us as Google, I since moved on to the team and joined Brand Studio. But the team that I was part of when I worked on Cooper, they continued it and actually they wanted to... Um, include more languages so it was available for other Indigenous languages outside of just Māori um, and in New Zealand. So they open-sourced, yeah, so it's Gaub, which was fantastic. Oh, it is fantastic. I think it's pretty powerful when you're in a position of using technology as an, and an enabler and then also being kind of the custodian of language there. There's a lot of responsibility there. I really resonated with me when you were saying, we were ready to go. You know, we could have done this in three months and we could have done it quickly, but for it to have the impact and ownership, co-ownership and, you know, and for it ultimately to end up open sourced is, uh, it, you know, must be a really fulfilling kind of project or everything you've done has made me feel better about the world. So that's good. I needed that today. <laughs> So you've worked in particular to confront kind of that implicit bias in your own industry. Um, I've heard you talk about that before. Can you tell me a little bit, I guess, about the lessons that you've learned with your work with Rare, um, and Rare being um, creating opportunities for minority identities within the creative industry. For us in education, 
I'm interested in kind of the parallels or lessons learned or what can we can kind of take from your work and look at education uh, and, and applying some of the same learnings. Advertising and commercial creativity has the power to inform culture. And historically, we've been a really homogenous, homogenous industry. So we've been male-dominated, male-to-female creative representation is incredibly low. So, for example, I believe out of the highest creative position, which is Chief Creative Officer, only 9% of the world's CCOs is an acronym for them, are female. And then the level below that, which is Creative Director, only 18%. Uh, are females so other underrepresented groups are even less so and females being the most represented of the underrepresented so what that means is that you've got people creating writing and making advertising so tv commercials radio spots on behalf of the cross-section of society that makes up our audiences and so you can do that with principles you can do that successfully it's also dangerous because you can get it completely wrong and so we have been responsible for negative stereotyping for informing cultures in negative ways so we need to increase representation and have diversity and diversity perspectives there creating communication that reflects who it's designed for because I truly believe that the fastest way for you get to authenticity and to get to nuance and to create pieces of communication that are really relevant um, to audiences is when you have a member of that community, part of that creation process, and ideally at, at, at the very heart of it, which is in the creative team itself. So Rare with Google was something I founded five years ago um, with another female creative director. It has now become Google's global diversity inclusion program for the industry. We have three programs. So we have a free night school to get underrepresented creatives industry trained um, because education can often be really expensive. Advertising award schools can be in the thousands. This pro, this night school, DNAD Shift, allows um, underrepresented creatives to be industry trained for free at night so they can maintain other jobs or, or other things. We then also have a global credit fellowship, which is your first kind of foot in the door opportunity because, again, if you don't have a network, it's often hard to get in and we don't have a clear pathway in. And then retention is an issue for us because our industry historically hasn't been designed for difference. We have great diverse creative leaders dropping out. So we have a leadership academy to try and give those diverse leaders a network and the tools, skills um, that they need to stay in and, and accelerate into leadership positions. So that's kind of the, the essence of what that program is. And in terms of parallels to education, I'm actually the daughter of three teachers, my mum, my dad and my stepmother. So I grew up in a house of education and I think it comes down to this too. It's like representation on teaching faculty. Like if you can't see yourself and the person that's teaching you the content, you're not going to believe that that person understands you. You're not going to believe that that person is, I guess, not there for you, but is in your corner, I guess, as well. Um, so I think it's incredibly important that, you know, hiring strategies, just like in our own industry, um, within education as well, that, that there is, you know, is there, what what are your inclusivity strategies when it comes to hiring the great diverse leaders that you, and teachers that you may have, how you're retaining them, how you're getting them into positions of leadership, like into principal positions or deputy, like all of that needs to be considered. And I'm sure there's some great strategies and stuff in place, but when it comes back to the student, you know, seeing themselves in the, in the authority that's in front of them, I think that's so important.
Yeah, I, I think that's really well said. And, and for us, it happens at, at multiple layers too. There's the the student needs to see themselves in their teachers. The teachers need to see themselves in their school, you know, and, and the school needs to see themselves in their system. You know, it goes all the way through because, um, as you say, it it can be there can be very influential decisions made on the behalf of others, and if you don't have representation and clarity of the obstacles and barriers, opportunities and context, you know, by having lived experience, um, then it can be very it can be a very slippery slope for acting on behalf of someone. Yeah, and I think it's similar to how, as a creative leader, I treat the people that. Um, that I manage, which is to understand the needs that my employees need and and how to work with them. You need to understand their situation. You need to have empathy for that. And it helps, I think, if you yourself have had similar experiences or you you just understand that. I I think students are so vulnerable, you know, to have teachers with empathy and understanding and different requirements. Like, for example, if you look at mental health and you might have someone that might prefer to learn in a different way or as an adult, they might like to work in a different way. Tara, I might, um, so it would be remiss of me while uh, while I've got you here from Google not to ask about what's next or what's the next kind of exciting project that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, so the most exciting project I think is the most exciting project I'm working on. All my projects are important if anyone from my team is listening, but um, we do have a pretty pretty special project that uh, actually won an innovation award last week called Project Huey. So we essentially have used machine learning to be able to tell in real time the performance and, and analytics of a surfer on a wave. So what this means is we can tell things like the speed of the surfer, we can tell the rotation of a manoeuvre that a surfer's performed on the wave, the height of an aerial. So... It may seem like kind of simple sports tech. We definitely chose an incredibly difficult sport to measure it on because the idea was if we design the solution for the most extreme sport, then it would filter down to other sports. <laughs> of course. The reasoning behind pursuing this was to try and de-bias sport judging and make the world a little bit fairer, um, and in this case, the, the sport world. So, you know, often athletes get judged. There was a an interesting case with Kelly Slater recently, um, but there's nationalistic bias, there's ageist bias, there's you know all sorts of bias that creeps into into scores because the very nature of being human is is your humanness. So where it felt like a role for technology to play a role was just in the facts. So that's what this tool can do is it just spits out the the data analytics of the performance, and then humans will always you know play the role in deciding what stylistically what's better. But it's an assistive tool for us to be able to make more informed decisions to give athletes reassurance and also to protect judges too and and help them make more informed decisions. So that one's one to keep an eye out for because we'll just continue to plug away at that one. But um, yeah, I'd say that's that's probably the most exciting project I've worked on in the last 12 months. Oh, wow. That's super interesting. Project Huey, the subjective uh, surf god himself, then you you can 
provide the data to make those informed decisions. I, I can't even imagine the technology that must sit behind that to be able to make those judgments, but I can certainly see the utility. But I think it certainly makes a big difference in the surfing world, whether Kelly Slater's at home or not at home or in Hawaii or not in Hawaii. And I'm sure that there's other uh, parallels that could be drawn with some results too. So the idea of reducing bias, you know, and, and trying to be as informed with data that's no longer subjective but really an objective kind of view of what's occurred you know can only be a good thing moving forward although i'm sure there's lots of debate about technology and sport that comes with that too but that's absolutely fascinating i'm going to conclude today's interview tara with probably the hardest question i think that i can ask you so i want you to imagine it's probably not hard for you to imagine it at google but i want you to imagine that you had an hour and you had a lesson with every 10-year-old in the world and at the end of that lesson they're all going to work out walk out the door with one thing that they've retained tara taught me when i was 10 and the whole world has acquired that learning intention what would you teach what would i teach um that is a big question i would say that you can do anything um would be the one piece of information to to take away i think you know, often people in different circumstances, you don't have the same advantage, you don't have the same privilege in it, and you feel that. But there's so many people who have such fantastic resilience and that comes from, you know, facing challenges in, in the earlier parts of your life. And you're super powered by coming from, you know, if you are a, a kid that's come from a place of disadvantage, becomes your advantage later in life because you thrive in uncertainty and we're certainly living in a very uncertain world at the moment um and if i'm quite honest it's it's people i've met who have had you know childhood trauma or they've had you know backgrounds which have required resilience that are actually thriving in this uncomfortable and forever changing world at the moment because they've been there and they're, they're used to it so don't ever feel like the start of your life well, has to influence and impact the rest of your life. It it can actually be used as your biggest strength. You're building this power that will serve you well um, into adulthood. So sorry if that was a bit of a lame answer, but no, not at all. It's that's it's such a good sentiment. I think as well. You know, that thriving in uncertainty, like you say, is you know it couldn't be more relevant to today. And certainly, the uncertainty that's coming tomorrow is undoubtedly there. So you know that capacity to thrive and use experiences to learn and grow and, and you know, sort of temper your kind of personality and attributes so that you're well-equipped for whatever does come, I think is an absolutely um, sound sentiment and couldn't be more relevant um, to everyone out there today. Tara, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'm going straight out to have a look at Project Huey as soon as I uh, <laughs> hang up from the call. I can't even get my friends to agree on the size of a wave, let alone the speed someone is riding down it. So that'll sit with me for sure. But thank you so much for your time and insights into your world at Google and, and, and to your life and the things that you value. Thank you. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Reflecting on my discussion with Tara, a few things resonated. Firstly, how cool's her job? Solving problems to make the world better seems like a pretty worthwhile way to spend your life. I'm taken with the idea that Tara rose that 20% of high school students had an undiagnosed eye condition, and her solution to that wasn't to target the high school students, but rather write a children's book to screen for the issue early, 
I think we can learn a lot from this idea of engaging activities to diagnose learning needs. I also enjoyed her articulation of responsible co-creation. They had the tech ready to roll with Kupu after just three months, but they took two years to release it because of the genuine partnership and co-creation that they engaged with, and the result was infinitely more powerful. And finally, I couldn't agree more with Tara about her sentiment that you can do anything, and that it is the experiences that teach us best how to thrive in uncertainty. Thanks for listening to Dot to Dot. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't, what you'd like more of, or what you learned. Reviews help us reach more listeners so that we can keep bringing you awesome conversations about what you want to hear about. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with each episode as they come out. Dot to Dot is a creatable podcast hosted by me, Ryder Tracy, and produced by Sophie Ellis. This episode was recorded on Darawal and Darug country. Catch you next week.